Hi, this is Tim Winter. Welcome to What Would Dave Do? A digital conversation exploring the leadership experience. You can listen to it at timwinter.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to What Would Dave Do? My podcast about the leadership experience. I'm really excited today with my uh, my guest, Thomas Cox, who is the president of Becoming a Best Boss Training and Coaching. I met Thomas a while back uh, as actually at one of his free seminars and then signed him up when I was the chief operating officer at Metal Toad Media to work with us. So I'm really excited to to chat with him today and uh, and keep exploring this thing we call leadership. Thomas, how are you? Doing well. And Tim, welcome to the show. You. Thank you so much, Tim. I appreciate it. And good for you for doing the podcast thing. This is important work that you're doing. Well, I appreciate that. And um, it has been more fulfilling than I ever thought. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I tried doing a podcast before and it was uninspired. And hmm. uh, and this podcast feels like it's, um, I don't know, it's, it, it feels very inspired. So, and nice. uh, it's been received really really well and I, I think it's a conversation that needs to keep happening so I'll keep doing it so for for me and anyone who's jumping in in the middle um, what would Dave do remind us remind the tell us the new folks who Dave is yeah Dave is one of us is him yeah right Dave was an incredible human being who um, uh, I met at Hollywood video you know years and years ago and uh, we were just kindred spirits and he had an approach and had this ability to um, to manage up, manage sideways, manage down in such a, a classy way. I always call myself a blue collar executive, and and uh, Dave was an Ivy League executive. Um, he he just had a really really great approach and uh, very calming. Um, he was a wonderful husband, a great father. Um, he loved his family dearly. He was very involved in his community. He's just one of those people. And um, well, you and he were pretty good friends, as I recall you telling me. Yeah, we were great friends. Yeah, yeah, he was well, he was my best friend, and um, you know, he was the best man in my wedding, and uh, he'd gone through all the big milestones in my life and in my professional career. Um, so yeah, Dave was uh, Dave was worthy of a podcast, that is for sure. Nice, and it sounds to me like that part of the reason this is a more inspired podcast than your prior attempt is you've got a touchdown you've got this this exemplar or model of from your own life of someone who was uh, a positive influence and admirable and I, I love that I think we all need that hopefully a lot of us have that person or those people in our lives from our memories who inspire us to be greater than who we would have been otherwise uh, you're spot on you know, and, and there's a side of me, I just, Dave impacted so many people's lives through his leadership yeah. that I just didn't want that to be forgotten or to, you know, and so I thought by having conversations with people who, you know, make leadership, it's either part of their life, their life, they're involved yeah. with it, or they were involved with, um, with Dave professionally. Right. I just thought it was a way to keep the conversation about, you know, servient leadership or people first uh, yes. leadership. There, there's, 
there's a lot of bad stuff happening out there. And um, I think, you know, it's one of the reasons I was excited to have you on the show because mm -hmm. when we first met, uh, I think I was going through that uh, one of your, I, I don't remember exactly, you probably know better. I, I, uh, I joined a, like a, a Zoom call or something and you were offering a, a, a service and I was really aligned with the, mm -hmm. the be the best boss or best mm -hmm. boss. Why don't you tell me a little bit about that? Well, it's interesting how this connects to what would Dave do? Because right. um, what the sense I have is that, and this is how I introduce the whole concept of the best boss to somebody, is I'll ask them, you know, who's the best boss you ever had and what were they like? And I, I try that because if you ask someone in the abstract, what should a good leader be like, they will get a faraway look in their eyes and they'll start talking about, you know, some mashup, some Frankenstein union of Gandhi and Jesus and MLK and, and Mother Teresa and like Lincoln and anybody that they've admired or historically read about that they thought was good. And they'll mash them all together. And there's no one human being ever born who can be all that except possibly Jesus. But and I'm not that. So you need to pull people back from the blue sky what should a hypothetical leader hypothetically be like and instead try on a real experience of a single person from your own experience who, who was the boss who brought out the best in you they've all, almost everyone's got a story like that and then it, it, by the way it turns out that i'm named after my dad's best boss I didn't, it wasn't until years, I, like I was in my 30s, I said, you know, I, I get who my, my brothers are named after, but who am I named after? Because I couldn't see him in the family tree. He says, oh, yeah, best boss I ever had, a guy named Thomas King. And I wish I'd done a deeper dive, but I didn't know then that I would be so fascinated by the topic. But I'm actually named after my dad's best boss. That's and, right. Yeah, that's, <laughs> so, that's fantastic. Here. Feels connected somehow. Uh, Our destiny. So, yeah, and so I'll ask somebody, you know, who's the best boss you ever had, and they'll, they'll tell me a name, use the first name, initials, whatever. And I'll say, okay, but why them? What's one thing they did that stands out? They did it better, or they did it, no one else did it, or, or something, right? And they'll, they'll, they'll very quickly come up with, you know, after a few seconds of silence and staring off into space, it'll be something like, well, you know, Chris really believed in me. Uh, or, you know, Taylor really uh, cared about me as a human being. Or, uh, you know, Randy just has such a high standard of excellence and pulled everybody up and wouldn't take second best from us and, you know, gave me more responsibility than I was ready for or that I thought I was ready for. And there's this whole cluster of behaviors that make up this singular experience of being the best boss someone's ever had. And it I boiled it down. I, I, I was fascinated by this, and I spent 20 years looking into the root causes of it. Uh, and standing on the shoulders of giants like Pete Friedis and, and several other authors, uh, and it actually boils down to a singular, um, a singular focus as the boss on making sure that your subordinate feels connected to you through some sort of authentic caring by you about them as, as a person. Like you can't fake this, don't try. Uh, it's combined with an expectation of them being not just good, but great. 
that their second best effort won't do, um, that you will, you will push them, pull them, stretch them, uh, not, not to the breaking point, but to a stretching point. Because when we are stretched beyond our original boundaries, we never return fully to, the, to our prior limitations. And that kind of uh, boss who knows you better in some ways than you know yourself, right? They, they see your strengths and weaknesses more clearly than you do because they're outside of you. And they can see you know, the untapped or the personally developed strength in you that's ready to come out. You know, this is the boss who will walk you to some meeting where you and the boss both prepare the presentation and say, uh, okay, you're giving the presentation, go. And you're like, but we didn't talk about that. It's like, yeah, no, correct. You would have just gotten nervous. Go. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Toss you in the deep end, but not too deep of the deep end. Like enough to like to make you that, that anxiety that comes with high performance, but not the anxiety that comes with total collapse. And so this is someone who knows you well enough to calibrate how much stress to put to under you, you under. And it's not zero, but it's not, you know, that whatever that too much is. And they may occasionally air high or low, but they'll they'll keep dialing it in and figure out, you know, how do I get the best out of this individual? And they're doing that across all their direct reports. How do I make them better? How do I help them grow? Where do they want to be? How do I help them get there? And it becomes the most fun way to be a boss when you're doing that. And of course, it's absolutely the best boss to have. And so that's why I call it a best boss, becoming a best boss, because any everybody can have this experience of having someone who was the best boss they ever had. And you can pay that forward and become not just the best boss you could be, but the best boss your people could have. Because it's all about the, the subjective follower experience. Um, I love the, the part about the pressure applying uh, our tension um, in uh, leadership through people skills. You know, they call it the positive pressure. And if you think of yeah. like a stick and you bend it slightly, slightly, if you bend it the other way, it's wrong, right? Like you can be too loose too. Mm -hmm. And so it is, and people gravitate to that and they perform at, at their highest level. And, and I love that. I, I, yeah. it, it really resonates. Well, for me and for my audience, I've gone through uh, Thomas's program. I, I've, uh, I've had the, the ple uh, pleasure of, of being in the, uh, the audience mm -hmm. and experiencing this um, on a, a couple different occasions. And I, I really, really value and appreciate the way you take us on the journey of exploring a best boss. Uh, you think it comes down to, I mean, you talk about the one thing, that relationship that they care about me. Uh, it, 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 to be a best boss is empathy. Do you have to have empathy? I think you have to have four things. Uh, and I actually, describe this in detail on my website, bestboss.biz, if you go to the services page, I lay it out. Uh, and I teach them in a sequence, right? So the first level is you just have to be an organized human being. You've got to be able to show up and be effective. And, and for most of us, that's remedial. I just a quick check. Hey, are you well-organized? <laughs> do you manage your time well? Uh, do, you, do you have a journaling practice? Do you even know what your own values are? Uh, do you have goals? Do you have willpower? Are you coachable? And that, that's sometimes that's just a quick checklist and you say, yep, you're good on all those fronts. And in a few cases, someone needs some, they need some help. They need some, some retrofitting. Uh, but you, I, I don't want someone to try to move forward if they're showing up uh, late and unorganized because no follower is going to want to lean into the strengths of a leader 
who's late, disorganized, can't manage their time, doesn't have willpower, doesn't know what goals are, doesn't seem to have a life purpose, uh, is themselves not very coachable. Those are all disqualifiers. Uh, so that's the first level. You know, can you show up on time? Uh, and the second level is empathy. Even before I want to teach you how to deal with anybody else as their boss, I want you to deal with them as a human. So that's EQ, emotion intelligence. Uh, it's something called PQ, which is the positive intelligence quotient from the book Positive Intelligence by Shirzad Shimi. Uh, there's a book, by the way, if you want to pick one book away from today's conversation that will change your life, uh, it is Positive Intelligence by Shirzad Shimi. It's so powerful that I now require anybody who's going to work with me to read that book and follow the, you know, and, the and rituals just and routines. And for the audience, it's Positive Intelligence? Positive Intelligence. Uh, the, the author's name is Shirzad Chamin. Uh, just look for positive intelligence and you see the author's name spelling that you don't recognize. That's probably the right one. Okay. Uh, and uh, what Shirzad does is his team has boiled down four different scientific disciplines into like what are the, the lowest common denominator, the simple things that we could do in the office in 10 seconds to get our heads on straight, to calm ourselves, to get out of blame and shame and criticism and denial and anger and into a kind of a calm, curious, uh, energized place. Because I promise you, when you think about the boss you want to follow, right, the leader you want to have, it's almost always going to be someone who, as you described it, calm energy, right, fully yep. present, uh, able to look at disaster and find the opportunity in it as opposed to the obvious. Reversal of that, oh, here's an opportunity to look for the disaster in it, right? We've all got both of those abilities in us. What I valued about the uh, positive intelligence work that I did last year and that I still do today is it trains you how to quiet the self-sabotage, uh, anger, fear portions of the brain, not to the point where you aren't properly feeling anger and fear. We should feel them. They inform us. Our emotions are incredibly useful uh, as, as messengers but you don't want to dwell in them. It's like, oh, I'm feeling scared. That means I have to take some action, to pay attention, what I need to pay attention to. And then you get into the sage part of your brain, the calm, laser-focused part, and go, oh, I need to pay attention to this. I wonder what the opportunity is here. And that's really where the emotional intelligence comes in, yep. right? I mean, yeah, that's it, being yeah, able to manage one, those emotions. Mm -hmm. Bingo, bingo. And I've seen plenty of resources on emotional intelligence. Uh, some better than others. The ones that I used, I might have even used on your team, uh, it came out of the uh, the Spolin games of the improvisational theater uh, background, where you, not not comedy, not comedy is about humor, which is often distancing. Improvisational theater is about all the emotions. And in order, in order to do the, even the exercise as well, you have to be fully alert to your uh, your play partner's emotional state and respond authentically to them from yourself. And the great thing about the games is they're low stakes, they're quick iteration. It's exactly what you'd want in a game or a drill around emotions is, you know, do it, do it quickly. Uh, if you mess up, they do try again, no big deal. Uh, and it did enormous amounts for my emotional fluency. And that's why I, I use those, uh, those improv games as a large part of the content of my level two. It, it, it gives people the practice they need to get better and better at spotting the other person's emotion, noticing their own emotion, 
matching the two up, talking about them in a way that's uh, curious and affectionate and not judging. So yeah, that, there's level two. I'm going to deep dive now. Level one, show up on time and prepared. Level two, show up empathic and able to be a good teammate. Uh, level three is then building the loyalty of a team. Level four is pushing that team to excellence. And pushing them to excellence is accountability. It's, oh, it's yeah. good measurement. It's Thank uh, you. celebrating the success. I, 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 yeah, I'm, well, it's having a compelling vision. Right. Right. The company has a vision. What's our vision for our team? And by the way, I know you so well, Fred, Tim, John, Randy, Chris, Sally, that I also would ask you, so what's your personal vision for yourself and your career? And how does our team vision and our company's vision, how is it compatible with that? Because if I can't combine, if I can't link your goals with our team goals, uh, I have much less traction with you. And it's very important, this is a big part of team building, by the way, is to let people have their own personal preferences and goals and things. You know, you get Randy really wants to get home to the kids on, you know, leave at five every single day. That's like the most important thing for Randy. But for Taylor, it's about job advancement, going the extra mile and looking for stretch assignments. And, and so clearly there's a synergy available where if ever anything is going to take extra time, you know, Taylor will take it on for, for Randy and whatever strengths Randy's bringing as long as it can be done by five o'clock, Randy will totally move heaven and earth for Taylor because Taylor's helping Randy get out at five. And so now that we know each other's goals, we, we flex and move and back each other up in ways uh, where we each give from our strengths and, and give where the person wants to be receiving. And it's uh, so so magical to watch that play oh, out yeah. where, and you see where the leadership, because that scenario that you just said, can easily become, you know, um, um, uh, a, a rub. Yeah, conflict. A, 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 a constructive a, conflict. Yeah, a conflict. Well, they're always leaving at five. Uh, you know. Yeah. Or, oh, they're whatever. Why do I have to stay late? Yeah. Whatever. Yeah, and it's a, it's a really good question. Yeah. Part of uh, we cover this a lot in level three, where you're trying to build team loyalty is, you know, because you are yourself organized and highly accountable. And because you have your empathic skills of the home, you can get to know each player on your team in great detail. You can guide these conversations where we say, okay, how do we want to be as a team? You know, uh, let's each share something about our personal lines with each other so we understand what's motivating each other. And when everyone knows that, you know, hell or high water, Randy's got to be out of your back. Just, that's just how it is. Okay. So. Then my challenge to the rest of the team is, okay, how do we work with that? How do we make sure that, A, that to the greatest extent we can, we can support our teammate without, B, turning into a bunch of uh, folks who are being taken advantage of where, you know, we're doing 60% uh, instead of 50 and the other person's doing 40% instead of 50. Like, how do we even that out? How do we make that fair and reasonable? Uh, and you, only you guys know what fairly reasonable is for you. I'll, I'll facilitate the conversation, but I'm going to expect them to bring up each other's issues. I'll say, so, Randy, what do you think Taylor's thinking right now? Or you just heard Taylor describe, you know, Taylor's perspective. Repeat it so that we know you, that Taylor was heard fully and completely. Uh, and then vice versa. Okay, Taylor, tell us Randy's perspective. What's, what's going on for him? And... After a while, they get used to this and say, okay, you guys know the thing where you, you say each other's side of this? Okay, go do that. <laughs> right, 
<laughs> yeah. If you need a third person, you know, pick somebody from the team. And I actually have this all written out in a procedure that they can follow for managing the conflicts. And once they get good at managing their own conflicts with each other, they get a level of trust with each other that's again complement. They're not afraid to have conflicts because they know they can work them out well. Well, you know, it comes down to like, it, it, I, I've always felt, I know when I'm doing my job really well as a leader, mm -hmm. when I feel like I'm not necessary anymore. Yeah, they might tell you in passing, oh yeah, hey Tim, we had this problem earlier today, but we solved it. Uh, there's a memo on your in your inbox yeah. explaining what we did. And you look it over and it's like, yep, that's even better than anything I would have brought up. That's beautiful. Thank you guys. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not, it's not like you don't have, it gives me time to be even more creative or to right. even take the team to that, to the, to the next level because right. I'm not focused on that. You no longer have to worry whether the engine will run. You can now talk to your peers in the organization. You can build out your executive network, which yep. your level of mind should always be building out a fairly extensive professional network uh, and continue indeed. to grow yeah continue to grow in, in setting the mo modeling that, that growth for others uh, and you know I'll tell people look you can't be promoted out of your role if you don't have somebody on your team who's able to and routinely does do about 50% of your job and if no one's doing even a fraction of your job as boss then you aren't delegating a fraction as much as you could and should yeah a absolutely absolutely so you have <laughs> there's so many because it makes me think of so many things but there's so many people mm -hmm. who who you know hire beneath them and and just because they're of fear and they want control and it, it's they don't realize that it's they're never going to grow you got to hire people smarter than you and then you have to trust them and well, that thank is god thank god it's for you guys like you and me it's not that hard to find right. people smarter than us uh, but yeah, there's an insecurity sometimes. Like, oh, you know, Ward is after my job. It's like he should be after your job. She should be ambitious. At least somebody on your team should be ambitious. How how are you going to get promoted if there's no one on your team who can take your place? If I can't replace you, I can't promote you. Oh, yeah. By the way, also, if no one is growing and looking like they could, you know, step into your shoes, that tells me you don't grow people. Why would I give you more people? Yeah. In fact, the gold standard is you find someone who's so talented, you, you help them grow professionally, they shoot past you, they go on to great things, they turn around and remember how great you were, and they pull you after them, you know? And then the, the junior that you mentor, who you know, becomes a senior executive at a much larger or in some other way cooler organization, is calling you to say, hey, I need someone good, and I know you're good, and you want to come work for me, and do for me what you did for the, our, old, our old bosses. I didn't even have to say yes to it, but even being asked is brilliant. But you won't be if you aren't engaging in this kind of, you know, growing others thing, which I think is really the one of the core deliverables yep. for, for anybody in, in, in a leadership position is helping others achieve their potential. So, Thomas, you're obviously a, a, a student and you've, you know, I've have read and are well read and have researched in the topic of leadership. Yeah. Has your philosophy about leadership changed over the years? Oh, enormously. Uh, yeah. I'll start with my my my, sort of my, my personal uh, crisis in 2005. I discovered um, through a, mo a moment of at the time fairly rare self-awareness that I was actually a toxic boss myself. 
I, 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 but, I, but, but this, no, this can't be. I thought because I, you know, I read Harvard Business Review, and I, I'm fascinated by this topic, and I read and I study and I'm trying stuff, and, well, and I, I was very, uh, let's just say, I, I was upset enough that I couldn't digest my lunch, and I uh, ended up leaving early and thought very seriously whether I even wanted to come back in the next day. Like maybe I should just stop trying to be anybody's boss until I figure out how to do it in a, at least in a non-toxic way. Because I was I was blaming people and, and you know everyone but myself of course and <laughs> highly critical and kind of demanding and not only did I not take the time to get to know my people I didn't know how to like I literally did not have a series of practices that I would engage in that would lead to that result. And if you don't have a series of practices that bring about the result, you don't have a method. And if you don't have a method, then it's just, you know, homegrown, seat of the pants. Oops. You know, maybe you're successful, maybe you're not. I, we would never tolerate that level of homegrown skill uh, in, say, accounting. Now, imagine you're going to hire an accountant. And the person says, well, you know, I've never actually been an accountant. I've never taken any classes, but I had a piggy bank as a kid. You know, would that be good enough? And no, I mean, for accounting, it would not be. But when it comes to leadership, it's like, oh, yeah, we're all doing it by the seat of our pants. None of us know what we're doing. Sure, not a problem. And, and that's just too low a standard. But I think folks aren't yet clued in that there, there are a series of disciplines and practices and rituals and methodologies taken together collectively will absolutely lead you to being an exceptional boss for people. It's not well, it's not rocket science, but it is, it's obscure because 95% of what I read about leadership is junk. Uh, and that's probably been my, the main work I've been engaged in since 2005 when I realized how completely off base I was, was I had to prune out of my brain all the things that weren't true and all the guidance that doesn't work. And I still have this game to this day where I'm reading an article about, well, leaders should do this. And I'll, I'll check to see, is this you know, category one, true but useless, where, you know, I can't fault what the person is saying, but it offers no guidance for action. It's like when, you know, Ron Sharon writes in his book, like, well, you, have to, you have to have the hard conversations. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll make a note. It's like, okay, how do I have, you just do it. It's like, okay, useless. Yeah, I mean, it's not, not wrong, but he's not helpful. Uh, and so that's, that's the first bucket of, of junk for, for leadership guidance. And then the second one is it, it, there is some step-by-step -step guidance in there that a person could follow, and it's wrong. Uh, this, I read one of those recently. Somebody was laying out uh, you know, how to interview somebody for a job and some of the kinds of answers you might get, and he was spot on. Like, I agree with everything he said up to that point. And he said, and so here's uh, a... a lexical analysis of the five job interviews. And so here are the words that were used. And so if you listen for these words in the interview, these words might mean that this person has the wrong values and you shouldn't hire them. I'm like, what are you talking about? There's no list of magic words. No, <laughs> that, that is so prime for false positives and false negatives. I can't imagine any guidance of words. You give someone confidence that they're gonna do the right thing and you are absolutely not gonna lead them to an effective outcome. So again, it, just, it blows my mind. And, and yet, and yet, anybody can be a leadership expert. You guess gotta claim you are. I claim I am, right? Right. Well, it's no stopping me. And then 
you know, there's this, oh, as long as I sound authoritative, you know, then I'll get clicks. It's like, whoa, okay, great. So you, that's it, sound authoritative? Uh, that's horrible. And so I, I only use stuff that works for me and works for my clients after I've tested it out. Uh, and that's a short list, right? Like, and I can give you a list of books to read if you wanted to do the self-study version of this journey that I've been on for 20 years. Oh, no, I think you've packaged it well. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I, I think you've done the heavy lifting. <laughs> I, I, I don't need to do that. I, I you know, I listen, I'm a believer. I, uh, I think what uh, becoming a well, best boss. Hey, but Tim, what's one thing that you recall I said to you or, or inspired you to think or feel or believe that it stuck with you? Am I putting you on the spot too much with that? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think I, I think it was the overall. Um, well, I think it's when you ask the question. I think it's how when you first started it and you asked the question, you know, name a best boss. And it was just it was so simple yet so beautiful. And it put people at ease. And they could really, they could really, they could own that. And it, it didn't seem, you know. Mm -hmm. I wasn't making them believe my truth. I was showing them the truth already inside themselves. Yes. And, okay. and then. So let, let's, let's actually walk through that right now for the, for the audience because they know this, you know the story, but they don't. So it goes like this. Um, you know, think of somebody from your past who was, would qualify as, you know, the best boss you've ever had and for some people they've never had a very good boss so then it's well the best teacher maybe the best coach or something like that hopefully it's not uh you know adult authority figure positive influence i guess and usually they can come up with a name i say you know if i have a room of a thousand people and i've done this with large audiences I say okay just grab a napkin or something and scribble up the first name or the initials if you're next to your boss and they are or aren't that person you know, you may want to write this in code, but commit to something in writing because I want you to remember this for later. Just commit to one person. And then the next thing to scribble down on this little piece of paper is a word or two, a little phrase to anchor your answer to this question. What did they do? What's one thing they did that makes them stand out in your memory as best, not second best, not third best? You know, ignore the worst. We're not trying to differentiate from the worst, but like what made them best not second best and then tim you would give us a first name and you'd tell us what the behavior was well i can tell you it's john alderson yep and he made me feel safe john and and made you feel safe and then of course i would drill in like safe what kind of what kind of say oh it's psychological safety safety at work safety uh to to be my best Ah, safety to make a mistake, safety to drive my business. Mm -hmm. Try new things. Try new things. Offer uh, an honest criticism of somebody. Always. I, yeah. I was totally like look forward to his his tours or his travel within my, mm -hmm. my zone. Uh, right. Yeah, like I couldn't wait to, to learn more. Right. And by the way, the, the reason I was guessing the things I was guessing for folks who are listening and don't know, Amy Edmondson wrote down. What is psychological safety? Oh. And it's, it, there's four elements, right? That you won't be uh, shamed or uh, punished for asking a question, admitting to a mistake, um, trying something new, uh, asking for help, 
I'm not sure if I can get the right focus. Some of these overlap, uh, offering an honest criticism of somebody else's uh, suggestion or action, and, and that that those are all the things we'd normally be shut down by if we weren't feeling safe. Like I don't want to look like a, an opinionated jerk, and I don't want to look like an idiot, and I'm not going to ask questions that re reveal my my ignorance and I made a mistake, and it's not safe to make mistakes around here. I'll hide them. You know, I, if, I, if I'm really low conscientiousness and I might even you know, blame somebody else for them or blame the client. Or, and none of that actually improves performance, right? Only psychological safety allows us to do the things that actually prefer, improve team performance. That's why psychological safety is, is core to my, my system. And so we've got the room full of a thousand people. Everyone's got their thing. Tim, you've got yours at psychological safety. You know, somebody else will say, oh, I, I you know, it really pushed me out of my comfort zone or, you know, Tim believed in me more than I believed in myself and would give me these responsibilities. I didn't think I was ready for it, but I was. And I always felt a little nervous, but he kept, you know, encouraging me and showing me that I was doing great. And before I knew it, I'd taken on so much more responsibility than I ever had before. And, and so you'll hear that there's two, you know, as you tease this out, and you could be, if you have the room of a thousand people, you know, you will typically like whiteboard it or use a flip chart, and like start writing down the things that people are shouting from the audience. And after a while, you'll build up this composite picture of what is a best boss and ask people, okay, so the person next to you just said safety and then you said this thing about challenging, but is the safety thing also true for you? And I'll say, well, well yeah. And I'll turn to Tim and say, so Tim, you said safety. He said, you know, challenging is challenging also true for you. And I'll say, probably. Yes. Absolutely. And then you'll find that everything that everybody is saying is true for everybody else's example as well. It's like, did you all work for the same person? <laughs> and that's when I think it starts to get clear that there is a, there's an exemplar. There is a uh, out there in, in, let's say there's the, the platonic ideal of the perfect circle, let's say. There's also a platonic ideal of the perfect boss. And it is the person that helps us become our best at this job. It's a combination of, I know you as a person, I keep you psychologically safe. That's not the same thing as safe from failure. Okay, I'll, I'll keep, you won't feel shamed or punished, but you still won't, it will still, it doesn't work. It's like, yeah, so Tim, I want you to feel too bad about it not working. And man, that, that did not work. <laughs> what are you going to do about it? Right. And so you still have to clean up your messes. You still got to do the work. Uh, it's just the it's just the, the well, shame and punishing that goes away. Well, there's there's the there's the big lie, right? Because mm. everybody thinks that that approach is too soft. Oh, and, ho, ho, ho. and it's not only because they don't know what it means. Right. Often they haven't had it. You know, interesting story. And why I say John is uh, John mm. Alderson, who was my very first guest on the show, um, yes. which was appropriate because he was a, a mentor to both Dave and I, um, yeah. but. The way I met John is I was asked to move back to the West Coast. John was hired onto the company to be the, uh, the, the senior vice president of the West Coast. I was going to be his new zone vice president for the Northwest. At the time, I was in the mid-Atlantic, uh, and I was having my business review. It was a thing that we went through quarterly business review where mm -hmm. we would meet and with all of our regionals and then we would bring high performance district managers. We would talk about the business. We would do succession planning and right. each each regional would get to talk about their zone. And um, it was uh, John was invited to mine 
uh, because he was inheriting me. And John wanted, was to be uh, ex exposed to this process called the business review. Uh, our senior vice president of HR was there. Our president of stores were there. And it was a bloodbath. Um, <laughs> it was a bloodbath. There was some posturing going on. There's a, they were going to show this new guy how tough they are. And um, we got done with it. It was an all-day thing. We meet for breakfast. Then we go into it. We, ha we, we, uh, we have lunch. And then um, uh, ends about 5 o'clock. And the team goes out for dinner. Uh, this was the model. And um, it was a bloodbath. And I'm thinking, so okay. And by that, I assume you mean lots of criticism, playing, finger pointing. Oh, question. Oh, yeah. Just unreasonable questions. Point, pointed questions that were not designed to elicit information, but to cast blame. Yes. Point, point, a lot of finger pointing. Um, it was just brutal. And uh, I thought, okay, well, my career's over. All of my regional managers were just deflated. And um, John comes up to me and says, can I buy you a beer before dinner? And I thought, okay, yeah, I, yeah, I'd love to have a beer. And I thought, well, here it goes. <laughs> so met him in the lobby beer bar. He sat down and he said, I'm really sorry for today. And my promise is you will never have this happen to you again as long as you work for me. And I was... And the man took me on a journey over a few years that was just unbelievable, and uh, and the in his approach and it, it transformed my life. It changed my life, uh, you know. To this day, I am the person yeah. I've had the success I have today. Um, I, I I I give it all to John. I, I really yeah. do. I think because I much like you were in two thousand five. I don't think I was a great boss yeah. uh, until I met John. I think my influences well, did were. Did you have any examples? Don't want to do copy anybody to pattern yourself after anybody to give you guidance. Like this stuff doesn't just fall out of the sky, right? And I think what was what was there was you know, uh, I remember John had this great question. John would always ask you, "What's your job, and what are three mm. things you do to make that happen every day?" Mm. And people will say things like, "My job is this, and I hire, I fire, I drive revenue, you know, whatever it is." And he he'd mm. look there and he'd go, "Huh, you know what my job is?" My job is to create exceptional experiences for my internal and my external guests. And the three things I do is I reward and recognize. I, you know, and he had these things that were so, oh, it, it just meant the world. It was just a different mm -hmm. approach. And, and mm -hmm. this was very aligned with being a best boss. And I oh, think yeah. that, I think that's why it resonated with me. I think it's why I brought it on to, to Metal Toad. Um, right. because the work that you do and then to watch you facilitate and, and those were some, we had a couple tough ones and to watch you be able to facilitate that and take those people on that journey was it, it's, you know, it really is magical when you see people become aligned and you see a team become aligned yeah. and you see the performance that they're able to get. It, it really is special. And I don't know why anybody would want to do it the hard way. I often because we don't realize there's an easier way. <laughs> I suspect. Okay. Uh, I, I, I'll accept that. I, I, I get that. I've taken many a, a tough road in my life, and usually it's either because there wasn't an easy one available that I could see, or one was offered and I didn't believe that it, that it was yet. Have you ever been to Bouchard Gardens up in Vancouver, BC? No, I haven't. Or not Vancouver, it's on um, Victoria Island. Okay. Okay, there's a, it's, a, it's a, an amazing, and you get to the Japanese gardens, mm -hmm. and you're at this point, and the, and the guide says to you, you can either go that way 
and it's a paved trail, or you can go this way and it's a gravel rocky trail. You choose your 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 path. And most people take the 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 paved trail, and the people mm-hmm. who take the rock trail, which is a little climb, hilly and it's rock, they get to this point where the trees open, and you can see the ocean. Mm-hmm. And it's everybody comes back. You all meet at the same place, right? The both trails go to the same place. But everybody who comes back from the Rocky Trail talks about the beautiful view of the ocean. And everybody on the other path, well, they got there, but, you know, it was nice and smooth and easy. And and this path was, and I always think about, yeah, those choices. Um, I, by the way, took the path of uh, the paid path. Um, Mm -hmm. But I was told that there's this beautiful view uh, of that. And I've been there several times. And now every time I go, I... I take the rocky path because it's it's quite beautiful. Um, and I think that's sometimes it appears that it's going to be easier, but the re- but, but it really isn't and the rewards aren't as great. Maybe that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. And if you if you're trying to have like the optimal garden experience, you got to be willing to, to risk the rocky path. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So so this is this is another thing with you. I, which I've just always, and, and we can talk about the the mm-hmm. one particular, or we can just talk in general. But your ability to explain ideas, concepts, in very simple terms, is absolutely amazing to me. And I, I what I'll point to the the story, and then we can talk about it. Is yeah. we were having a meeting one day. It wasn't even with a group. We were just talking, and I think we started talking about um, we started talking about uh, help me out here. Um, we, we were um, pre uh, pretext and context. Oh gosh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I and you whiteboarded the whole thing for me. Yeah, yeah. We had we had a sentence, right? We had the content. Yeah. Right of whatever the statement was. I think we're trying to understand how people misunderstand one another and how accountability does or doesn't play out for folks. Well, there's 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 aren't there three of them? Aren't there? Uh, oh, at least, yeah. Let me see if I can recall. I, I've literally never given that talk to anybody ever since. Oh my god! Uh, not that I can recall. Pretext. So, so, oh, thank you, pretext. So, there's um, there's a sentence you reach right up on the board. Like, I, I see you're late, and that can be said with all sorts of different tones of voice. I see you're late, and okay. So, what's the content of that statement? Well, it's me seeing something about you arriving at a time later than the time I at least expected you. Uh, okay, but we don't really know. That's not telling us much yet. So it, is there some context to this? Like the surrounding reality that was true before I opened my mouth. Like, you, you know, you've, you've never been late before, right? Or you're late all the time and I had to yell at you once. Or like there's all kinds of external facts that, that frame up this one moment that help us make sense of the sentence. Um, and then I think on the whiteboard, I wrote it underneath mm-hmm. subtext or sub means under, or what's the subtext here? Well, the subtext is the, the unspoken meaning, right? Context of the facts surrounding the subtext is what's, you know, something about my tone of voice, something about, you know, how you know I feel about it. So that's context too. And, and so if I put a certain you know, playfulness in my tone, but the subtext is here is that I'm teasing you. Or I could have a lot of disapproval in my voice, and the subtext is that I'm 
I'm scolding you, even though the words don't say that I'm scolding you. And then the whole thing could be a pretext, right? Because pretextual things are, you know, I'm, I'm doing A, but what I'm really trying to convey is something entirely different. Like my, my criticizing you is just a, an excuse for, say, putting you on probation. Right. And, right. And so there's that's nothing the... about you being late that really justifies that. But I have some other agenda that I'm not willing to admit to. Uh, you know, I've decided to force you out and replace you with my son-in-law. And so, <laughs> you know, I suddenly, you know, start holding you at a standard that no one else has to be held to. And, you know, suddenly five seconds after the hour is late, uh, even though no one else is held to that. And so all you know, pretexts in particular can really destroy trust and destroy the content of communication. And, and so well, I think what I was trying to get at probably back then was how are we talking about our communication and wh what are we wondering and what are we suspecting? And when you, when you wonder things and suspect things about each other's communications, the only ethical safe way to get to, to dry land, to get to some sort of shared mutual understanding that's, that's honest, respectful, and truthful is to start being explicit about the things that are implicit. You know, you might say, hey, Tim, you know, you're late. And you might say, you've never commented on my lateness before, Thomas. What's going on? Right? right? Like, what, yep. what, are you, what are you really saying here? Mm -hmm. like, is, are you saying something subtextually that you'd like me to convert into actual text? <laughs> like, so, well, you know, I was sort of expecting you to be a little early since, you know, you always brag about how you're early for important meetings. And I thought you knew that this was an important meeting because I want to talk to you about your promotion. And you're like, dink, what? And so, ha ha. And yeah, there's lots of ways to play that out. And, and having the vocabulary to talk about talking about it, it can get a little meta if you're not careful, but it, it can be pretty important if you're trying to debug human communications. Well, I just I think that you're a master of being able to take those things, and I I think it's why you I used to be completely incoherent, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I, I've come a long way. Uh, I, I had a, a, I've always had decently good brain power, but I, for some reason, it was just, and I can't blame anyone but myself. I mean, my parents tried to socialize me in my school and my peers, but I was deeply resistant to learning much about how humans really work uh, until I was well into my 30s. And slowly been working through it ever since. And, and, but I've been very, very, very consistent in trying, and it's, uh, it's accumulated now to, uh, Let's just say whatever problem you're having, I've had most most likely. Well, I think that your your demeanor and the way that you approach it is, uh, you know, again uh, for for my audience, I you I've been a student, I've uh, I've been there and I've watched you do it, and so I'm amazed. What do you think of the workplace? There's a lot of talk right now. There's mm -hmm. kind of a little bit of a buzz out there about how work is changing. You've yeah. got people who are changing the the spelling of work to WRK going more to the uh, to the root, um, but work certainly is changing. I, I think there was a, a CEO who just announced they're going to demand all their workers go back to the office, and it's like, oh, they're probably not. They're probably going to go find new jobs. Maybe mm -hmm. not today with a little bit of changes. But how do you think? Or, or do you have an opinion on how the workplace has changed and the future of work? <laughs> I, I do, and I, I don't know that I'm right, but I'll, I have to do my best guess in the moment is what I have to. Um, I think that 
as workers are becoming more able to change jobs and as the work uh, force is short of workers in the US, uh, you've got more choices than you've ever had before. Yes, but there's a competition afoot, um, maybe a soft one, maybe a fierce one, depending on what niche you're in, uh, to attract and retain good people. And I also think that there's a better understanding that people have to be developed, that you can't just expect them to show up fully ready to do whatever you want them to do. And that the, the techniques for uh, training folks are improving. So the ability to help people become ex exceptional computers is growing. Uh, and I'm seeing a greater awareness of things like emotional fluency, um, the fact that Brene Brown has had these amazing uh, videos on Netflix explaining the emotions, like our emotional fluency as a culture, I'm hoping is, is beginning to increase. We understand that, you know, the, the the demanding boss who does nothing but criticize people isn't an inevitability, nor is it even a very good idea, honestly. And it doesn't bring out the best in people. In fact, I would love to compete side by side with against someone like that because I would blow them out of the water uh, just on merit. And so I, I think we're seeing that workers' expectations of their work experience are going up as I think they should. And I think that uh, employers' ability to meet those expectations and give them really good work experiences uh, is also going up as it needs to. If you spend a, a third of your life at work in most cases, and we're pretty darn close to that now, more than you may spend awake with your own family. It's one of the biggest influences on your happiness, uh, not to mention your ability to earn the money to feed and clothe and house yourself and your family. So uh, the work experience is tremendously important. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad that the bar is, I think, being raised. And we're seeing, you know, some discomfort around that because change can be awkward. You know, if you're in your 50s or 60s and, you know, it's always been a certain way and it's starting to be not that way anymore, um, you may have to pivot. You may have to learn some new people skills. You may have to learn some, some, some new ways of being. And, of course, it's not just the people skills. It's also the, the skills of acquiring. Because... Uh, Workers don't just want a touchy-feely sweet boss who makes everyone comfy and brings them cupcakes and asks them about their kids. Like that's a kind of a country club environment where we all get along, but it doesn't actually lead to excellence. It doesn't lead to performance. It doesn't lead to something you can be proud of. And if I could offer you that and the other guys don't, well, come work for me. Because we we want we don't just want to be comfy at work. We want to get, do something worth doing. We want to be able to say at the end of the week that we we got some important things done. We can be proud of, and we and we got to get to know our coworkers well, and we got to become a, a good teammate and feel connected and valued. And that that doesn't happen by itself. No, no, it doesn't. I, I think that's uh, that's beautifully stated, uh, and I I knew you would have an opinion on it, and uh, yeah. So, okay. Not, so, not to brag too much, but I can show pretty much anybody how to do it. <laughs> I know you can. How do you, uh, who do you admire out there today? Like there's lots, like you mentioned Renee, there's, there's Simon, there's lots of people, but who in, yeah. are in a leadership role or who are you following or who do you admire today? I don't really follow um, the, the corporate CEO personality 
sweepstakes um, that you'll see in the news, like, what about Elon Musk? And what about this? Right. Yeah. It's like, look, I, it's easy to have opinions about people about whom sensationalistic articles are written. And that those opinions are not worth much. Um, I'll tell you a couple of examples that you could look up if you're interested. There was the head of Alcoa who, the, the stock market thought he was a disaster when he came on as CEO. I wish I remember his name. He said his number one priority was worker safety. And so anytime there was so much as a, you know, a Band-Aid applied in one of the Alcoa uh, aluminum mills, and aluminum mills are not safe places. When you look at molten metal, this is not heavy, heavy equipment. And this is some scary stuff. And they did not have the world's best safety record. Uh, he said, my, my goal is, you know, 100% safety, you know, zero worker accidents or incidents um, per year, starting immediately. And so every time there's an incident, I expect a full write-up within 24 hours, and I'm going to look at them myself. I never thought this was nonsense, but what he was actually doing was putting in place the preconditions for a lean, a lean workplace um, and a learning workplace. And so how these these write-ups were treated was, okay, what in our system led to that accident or that incident? You're not allowed to blame people in the write-up. You can't say, well, he got hurt because he was sloppy or didn't pay attention to the sign or whatever. It's like, no, that's not good enough. You know, was he thoroughly trained? Can you prove to me he was thoroughly trained? Right? Are we spot-checking people's use of lockout tags? What about, you know? And it became this thing that the way you get ahead in the organization, the thing that the boss pays attention to, and here's a little tip, whatever the boss pays attention to becomes the culture. Whatever right. the boss pays attention to becomes the culture. Right? It, as the boss, you have the eye of Sauron, <laughs> that big bright red searchlight that <laughs> sweeps across the land and freezes people in their tracks. Okay, that's you. Um, and what you pay attention to gains in significance by the virtue of the fact that you paid attention to it. Right? And so here he is paying attention to safety in a very specific way to understand root causes of things. He's teaching people how to do root cause analysis properly and how to understand how the system creates the outcome. And in the process of becoming safe, they become efficient. In the process of becoming efficient, they become safe. In the process of becoming both safe and efficient, they become wildly profitable. But he wasn't shooting for profits. Profits was a, were the inevitable outcome, but a side effect in some sense of this focus on understanding that it's our systems that create our outcomes. And that's true for everybody. Every system you have today is perfectly designed, consciously or not, to produce the results it's currently producing. So if you have 10% of your uh, ventilators that are in salt seven days or more on a patient results in a ventilator-related pneumonia, then you have a system for creating pneumonia. You just don't know it. And, and if you want to change it, you don't you know, reprimand nurses or, or wag your finger or put up slogans on the walls. You study your systems. And that's why I've created not just a leadership training uh, curriculum, but an actual system. Uh, it, follow, it gives you the things you should be doing on a daily and weekly basis to bring about the results I'm talking about. You're touching a little bit there, and I, I didn't know that. We've never talked about this, but you're touching a little bit on Deming. Did, are, oh, you a, yes. are you a student? Huge fan <laughs> of Deming. Yeah, I'm one of the first uh, trained Harada Method uh, coaches in the United States. The Harada Method is the 
uh, considered to be the leading coaching methodology after Japan. One of the seven deadly sins, slogans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. no slogans. <laughs> no slogans. Yeah, and no stupid numerical targets. Right. Ah, that's it. We'll have to have that conversation someday about Deming. And I was introduced to him and he's really quite amazing. You know, he was shunned by America. You know the story. Oh, yeah. Shunned by America. Embraced by Japan, who then probably kicked everybody's butt. And, you know, Toyota to this day is is still doing, you know. Oh, yeah. I love the story about how in General Motors, their worst plant was uh, was in Oakland. And they... They shut it down because it was it produced more defects and fewer working cars per worker hour than any other plant in North America. It's absolutely the worst, worst labor relations, worst everything. They shut it down, and then Japan, uh, the Toyota wanted to do a joint venture. It's called Numi, M-U-M-M-I. Uh, and so they were, the, the labor union required that they reopen that plant, worst plant in North America, with the same workers. And the Japanese said, okay, <laughs> and they and they trained them uh, and they, they had Japanese managers there and they became the most profitable, most productive plant General Motors had ever had a finger attached to uh, with the same workers, which tells you it wasn't the fault of the workers. It was the fault of the system they were embedded in. And my favorite story about that is they just restarted the plant. And of course, they've got the famous, you know, Toyota Andon cord, which is this cord you pull if you can't finish your car assembly task in the time allotted, you will stop the entire line. The entire factory stops when you pull this lot, this cord, so that you can fix whatever you need to fix, whereupon they do a root cause analysis of, well, why couldn't you do it? Like, what was wrong? How do we make that better? And you pull the cord and start it up again. So this guy is struggling, and Mr. Toyoda, who's like the grandson of the founder, is on a tour with his translator and his bevy of like eight top subordinates executives and here's this guy you know joe is trying to install a, the plastic housing on a, a taillight and it won't go in it's stuck and he's trying to jam it, he's trying to stick it and mr toyota says sees his name is joe it's on his it's on his tunic he says joe pull the cord he says no no no, i got this i can get this it's like no, no please pull the cord no no i don't have to i can do this it's like that's not what you're supposed to do and so he mr toyota this, this senior Japanese gentleman comes over, grabs him by the hand, puts his hand on the cord, and helps Joe pull the cord. Doesn't pull it for him. Guides his hand onto the cord, wraps his own hand around the outside of Joe's hand, pulls downward so that Joe pulls the cord, then lets him go, and he, he finishes the taillight thing. And then he pulls the cord to start the line again. And when he turns around, expecting to get yelled at, he finds that Mr. Toyota is bowing deeply to him and says, Joe, I am so sorry. This is my fault. I have failed to adequately explain to my subordinates the importance of teaching you how to pull the cord. Um, I hope you will forgive me. I promise that this will not happen again. Only you, Joe, only you can make every car wonderful because only the worker can, can create what we are here to create. Only you can make every car great, Joe. And I need to support you better than I have, and I'm so sorry. You can find this story written up. I got the words, some of the words wrong, in a wonderful book called uh, uh, "Smarter, Faster, Better" by Dewey. Yep. yep. And ah. so, anyway, so the guy's thinking they're dumbfounded. Of course, all of Mr. Toyota's subordinates, who he has failed to properly inform, there's some subtext for you. I'm apologizing to Joe, but I'm really communicating to the guys behind me 
do this. I'm not going to see this again, am I? Right. Uh, and meanwhile, you know, everybody around is like watching what's going on. And, you know, the stories it goes from flashes from one end of the, the, the factory to the other by, by lunch. And pretty soon there's more cords getting pulled. And, you know, it gets pulled twice more that day and then four times the next day and then eight times. It's like they're finally realizing the cord isn't decoration. They really mean it. And they say, if you can't get your job done properly in the time available, you pull that cord because there's something wrong with the system. Not with you, with the system. And we're going to figure out what it is. And you have to lead that by example, which is what he did by apologizing. And owning, owning the, the, I own the company. I own all the systems, whether I know it or not. Just like if anybody reports to me, I'm responsible for everything they do and everything they fail to do, whether I know about it or not. And that's true of everybody in management at every level. If you're not prepared to be responsible like that, you shouldn't be a manager. And General Motors scoffed at Deming. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and they couldn't replicate Newby. They criticized him. They yeah. tried. Yeah, they, they, they blamed everyone but themselves. It's a blame <laughs> culture. Right. Allocation of blame is the primary skill. Yeah, and you'll push that worm up the hill, and you'll never create great products. You'll never create great yeah. experiences. And uh, you, you'll just keep going and going. It, it's amazing. And uh, what a wonderful story. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. That was. Uh, Thank you. It's one of my favorites. Uh, I, I get it. So, okay, with that, kind of in that same spirit, you've got a new executive who's taken on a new role. What, what mm -hmm. advice would Thomas mm -hmm. Cox give him? Uh, well, make sure that they understand that you're. You're in a role to deliver results, but you're also in that role to build the team and retain the best people. And you know, if you find that someone isn't a good fit for the role they're in, it's on you to help counsel them into a better fit role, including one that might not be inside this company. Uh, it's your job to build strong relationships. If you're an executive, you probably have managers reporting to you. You're responsible for the quality of their leadership and whether they've, you know, are familiar with Amy Edmondson and psychological safety, or Pete Freitas's uh, book on relating and requiring, or uh, the incredible book *The Effective Manager* by Mark Horstman, uh, or you know the uh, *Positive Intelligence* book, which is my my starting point for anybody. Uh, and I, I would probably assess them and say, you know, where are you strong? Where are you weak? What, what are you here to do? And can you keep it clear what your results are? That you're here to do. Um, and executives in particular have to say no to almost everything. They can only say yes to very, very few things. And, if they, and they've got to delegate very powerfully to their subordinate managers in order to find the time to do the work. It's uh, it's an extremely difficult job being so. Yep. Um, you know, but it's also, but in some ways, it's also very growthful because the the very difficulty of it forces you to grow if you if you're willing to. Yeah, and if you view the role of leadership as a privilege, it's a good answer. right? Like my greatest, when I look back on my career, my greatest gift isn't the money I made or the, the what I acquired or, or any mm -hmm. of those things. It yeah. really is when I see people who started as maybe a CSR or yep. went, who are now a senior vice president or president of a company, 
who worked with me or with uh, were on my team at some point in their career. There's right. plenty of people at Metal Toad. There's plenty of people at Hollywood. There's pl I mean, I, I just it gives me such great joy to to see that or to see mm -hmm. the impact that you really can have on people's lives. Oh yeah. As a leader, do do you? I mean, I I can name off a, a bunch of them, but do you have a? I mean, you've been coaching people you've been you've been deep in the bowels of companies in helping them where they can't really see themselves in the mirror and and you're yeah. helping them to look in the mirror and i know that you do you have any memories or do you have any of a of firsthand how leadership well, might have impacted someone's life i actually I, I have to where my head goes isn't anything that i did particularly there was a, a lady i had a chance to work with who you know uh, Victoria Blake. Oh, yeah. Who, um, I worked with her on a little startup that never went anywhere. And, uh, but she was so talented and so intelligent and so capable. And I thought so underutilized. Uh, and she was interested in working at Metal Toad. And I said, can I you know, give you any encouragement? Yeah, I had a little bit of skill in helping with interviews. So I said, can I help you with that? Because I really wanted to, to get you know, a job where she could shine. Uh, and I don't know that I helped her all that much, but I certainly did my best in my small way. And she's gone on to, you know, she's now vice president, and she's, you know, just taken off like a rocket because she finally got exposure to the, the context of the technology company leadership where her skills could um, play out, where her strengths could play out. I, I don't know that I was a talent spotter so much as I was a talent cheerleader for her, but I'd like to imagine that it's in tiny, tiny way I helped boost her along, along the way. And I could, you know, let's say that same story about many people you know, that I've coached over the years. Uh, folks who, you know, were not, I wasn't sure they were going to stick around in the company. And then they turned, they turned into one of the best leaders. Uh, I don't want to drop names because I don't embarrass somebody. Uh, but yeah, I've got a couple. There was one guy who used to be feared by his co-workers he was the the heir apparent for the company the owner was making it clear he wanted this guy to take over uh, but he had some really noxious behaviors that he himself did not realize he was doing as he was doing and so i was able to uh first you know, get the 360 input and say look you're doing some stuff that people don't actually like uh and of course you don't know you're doing it at the moment you're doing it you can't right it, these, these are unconscious behaviors and ask you to walk around and be conscious all the time is Maybe the Dalai Lama can do that, but I'm not going to expect that of you, nor should anyone. So how about this? How about you, if you're serious about changing this behavior, um, I invite you to ask your subordinates and your coworkers uh, that they do you the following favor. I'm going to put a bell on my desk, and I'll bring it with me to meetings. And any time I do the, the thing that you don't like, you would interrupt people and mock them. Anytime I do that, you got to ring the bell. And I'm allowed to say two, I'm allowed to do exactly two things anytime anyone rings the bell. I say, thank you, and I shut up. Yeah. And if you do, you know, I coached him to be courageous enough to ask that folks would support him in this way. He, he tried the bell out, he brought the bell, and he started ringing it. He's like, oh, am I doing that right now? <laughs> Oops. Uh, and it was, it, it be, they would never have done it if he hadn't asked them. Yep. And I, I actually, I'll tell you how he, figure that one out. Um, I was coaching uh, the head of uh, 
at the time the head of trauma surgery for Salem Hospital. And she was trying to get the doctors to start asking the operating room staff, the surgeons should ask the operating room staff to interrupt them if they see something happening that shouldn't happen. Because a common pattern in, sur in surgical suites around the world is if something starts to go sideways, someone in the room notices it early on, but they don't say anything. And the reason they don't say anything is because they're intimidated by the surgeon, because the surgeon's in charge, and the surgeon knows more than you do, and the surgeon's smarter than you do, and they're paid a lot more, and they're much higher ranking than you, and you don't want to embarrass yourself in front of them. And so, you know, who am I to say anything? They must know what they're doing. It must be okay, even when it's not. And so the, the magic saying is, as the surgeon or as the boss, say, look, if anybody sees anything going even slightly sideways, even if you're not sure if it's going sideways, I ask you, please do me a favor. Please speak up. I need your help. I need your eyes. I need you to, to warn me if we're starting to go off a cliff. Don't let me drive us off a cliff, okay? Can I count on each of you to speak up? And you're like, look at each one in turn. Yeah, I'll speak up. Yeah, I'll speak up. Okay. Now they just committed to it. Now, if the boss just like practically begs you to speak up, you feel much more open in speaking up, at least the first time. Now, if he bites your head off, you'll never do that again. But we leaders have to ask people to be courageous and then prove to them that it's safe to do so if we want their honest feedback in the moment on how we can be better. And that's that's, that's one of the tricks that uh, that I will coach people through. And so that's that's the story that sticks with me. And it goes back to psychological safety, and it goes yes. back to positive, positive intent. I mean, that's my whole thing. If the whole world could just assume positive intent, we'd oh, be a yeah. better place. And 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 that people come. I don't believe anybody wakes up in the morning and says, "I want to do a crappy job." You're correct. I think no it's one, the no one does. it's the system. It's the it's the leadership. It's the environment. Yes. that yes. create that. Yeah, and it, it's. It's extremely rare and only in cases of profound demoralization. Right. Uh, you have people who wanted to do things that would sabotage their organization. Yep. I, I don't, I think it, it's rare and it is when it is horrible. Yeah. Yeah. They've been so mistreated that they, they feel they have to you know, somehow lash out or act or lash well, back. It's, it's, well, it's just terrible. And, and they can be turned around, treat people decently. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like the... And I make it sound easy, but it's not always. No. I mean, I, 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 yeah, that's like me in 2005 would have said, oh, I'm already, the, I'm, teaching, I'm treating everyone fine. What are you talking about? You know, and of course I wasn't. I just didn't know it. Oh, I, I used to, in, when my consulting practice, I'd have uh, bosses or CEOs say to me, Tim, you make this sound so easy. Yeah, I go, oh, then I'm not doing my job because well, it's not easy. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like you know, they go to the stock market and you buy low and you sell high, yeah. right? It's simple. It's just not easy. It's not easy. I, and yeah. I, I always, you know, I leave it all on the on the field. And when I'm done at the end of the day, I, I'm exhausted if I've done it right. <laughs> okay. But That's I, one approach. I'm not. I, I'm exhausted if I've done it right. And, and I'm talking more in the multi-unit and, and in those worlds. If I was, if I'm given it all, you mm -hmm. know, I, I, I just feel that way sometimes. And it's the passion. It's excitement around, you know what we get to do and i, I just yeah. always feel so fortunate well thomas i could talk to you all day uh but i we're coming up against the the break and i just wanted to ask you how mm -hmm. do people get a hold of you and i'm just going to do an endorsement I, you know if, if your company or if you're looking for uh, coaching 
I, I cannot recommend uh, Thomas Cox and his program uh, becoming a best boss uh, more. And uh, John, how can they, or Tom, how can they get a hold of you? And what's the yeah, best way? It's just go to uh, bestboss.biz, B-I-Z, bestboss.biz, and uh, click on the contact button and leave me a note, or you can call me, 503-516-3886. Uh, well, listen, I appreciate you so much. I appreciate uh, I appreciate you being a guest. You were a great guest. I just really appreciate the conversation. It was fun. And, uh, you know, I, 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 as I do this, I, when, I, when I do these interviews, I always think, you know, what would Dave think? And mm. um, I think he'd be really inspired. And uh, I think he'd be really aligned with, uh, with your stories. And he probably has a big smile on his face. So, so thank you for that. Nice. Thank you. You bet, my friend. Well, listen, I appreciate you so very much. And uh, we will talk soon. And thank you for being on the show. Great. Thank you. All right, man. Talk to you later.